Many of you know Albert Moeller, and for those of you who don't know, he is a prominent uh, president in the theological seminary overseas. For those of you who don't know either, and for those of you who do know, he's an avid socio-political commentator. He has a forum called The Briefing, where he discusses and posts podcasts about certain issues going on in the U.S., I was reading one of his articles on the website and he had a striking statement to make. It read that individualism is one of the besetting sins of evangelicalism. And if you're wondering what individualism means, it means that the gospel-believing church has a tendency to orient its life primarily around ourselves. It means that there is somewhat of an inward focus in our lives. We live kind of alone, insularly thinking about our own needs, our day-to-day requirements. That's what individualism means, in layman terms, of course. But of course, we can't press this statement too far. Albert Moeller obviously doesn't know the heart and mind of everyone who is professing Christianity in the West. He doesn't know that. He's not omniscient. But as someone who is well-connected within the churches in America, given his position as president of the seminary, given his position as a well-connected pastor, he may kind of have insight into the life and ways of Christians in the West. But more importantly than having regard for a well-respected pastor and cultural commentator, our commitment to scripture and its diagnosis of the human condition should make us understand that this isn't a far-fetched idea that Christians can sin. We shouldn't have the shock Pikachu face when someone says that. Our text today confronts this bent, though, of individualism that lies within each of us. We'll hopefully see today that the Apostle of Love militates against the very idea of individualism by calling us to love the brothers. In fact, the main idea of this particular section is that Christianity is only present where there is a love of the brothers. Spoken negatively, those who are not marked by love are not Christians. That's the simple assertion that we're going to unravel and unfold this evening. And as John progresses throughout the discourse, to my mind, he first reminds us of the imperative or the command. After that, he motivates us for adherence to this command by appealing to negative example first in the life of Cain, and then afterwards appealing to positive example in the life of Jesus. And lastly, he gives us some practical application. So let's look first at this imperative or this command to love. Now a cursory look at verse 11 shows us that John is meaning to clarify what he previously said in verse 10. John's use of the word for obviously connects us to what happened before. So let's look at verse 10 momentarily. It says, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So there is this litmus test, as it were, given And we are meant to see that the results will show there's Christianity or there's no Christianity. Based on the expression of love to believers. 
And as if to provide compelling evidence that this test is indeed reliable and true, he points us to this message which was from the beginning. This Angelia in the Greek was nothing less than direct revelation from heaven itself. That is really undebatable. No one who is in the evangelical church thinks that the message they heard from the beginning was simply hearsay or it was Pharisaic tradition. No, there's uniformity within the evangelical church that the message from the beginning was an authoritative word from God. But some commentators differ on the exact nature of the content of this message from the beginning. There are those who suggest that we should interpret the message as early apostolic teaching. But others claim that the message relates to the revelation of the law displayed in the negative example of Cain. But to me, it seems more probable that John is actually replicating the words of the Lord Jesus, captured in the gospel. On the night of this betrayal, Jesus says in John chapter 13 and verse 34 this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. So from my perspective, it's more likely that within this context, this proclamation was made through the mouth of the apostles, who in turn received it from Jesus himself. Either way, it's kind of a moot point, because both are arguing that it's authoritative revelation that came from heaven. It's just... Who did it come from? Who said it? And so John's reasoning, though, is quite plain. Those who oppose such a fundamental precept, which is so expressive of God's nature and will, are not of God. Remember that on the very night Jesus had washed the grubby feet of the apostles with his own towel, essentially claiming that no act of loving service was too menial for him as their Lord and Master to perform. Having a view of the lengths of the Lord's own example, only those who have absolutely no regard for the Lord's actions and authority as master would not follow this command. How can you, a professing Christian, be unwilling to do something that the Lord was willing to stoop and do? Are you greater than the Lord in Christ? It's a rhetorical question. Your answer is no. John is directing us to remember that Those who act contrary to what God has so clearly desired and commanded display no evidence that they are children of God. That's the sense of John's explanation or his clarification. Writers of antiquity, and particularly St. Jerome, for those of you who read old literature like our brother, claim that this teaching of the Lord Jesus to love one another was so infused in the teaching of the Apostle John that after growing age, he would be carried into the assembly of believers by others, heralding over and over, love one another, love one another, love one another, repeatedly. When is, is reported, when his hearers eventually began to either be wary of it or to question why why is he saying this over and over they asked him why do you always say this his response is instructive it is the lord's command and if this alone is done it is enough whether this extra biblical source is true or not makes no difference really the point is that there's a sense of the very primacy of this duty because they flow from the mouth of Jesus, our God and King. And so this isn't just a good catchphrase 
or an option that we can consider when you're going out throughout your life. It isn't that Jesus is giving advice as a life coach so that you can navigate the difficulties of life more easily. The very weight of the authority of God is impressed upon us. To have scant regard for anything Jesus requires of us, to view Jesus as anything, uh, to view Jesus as just another person giving practical life lessons and not the king of the cosmos, really means that you are not really demonstrating that you are within the Christian faith. That's what John means to say when he directs our attention to this message that was from the very words, the very mouth of Jesus. But we should also consider the scope of this message, or the command as well. John says that you, plural, in verse 11, says you, plural, have heard the message from the beginning. That we, including himself, should love one another. Or more literally, in the Greek, love one to another. It seems as though John was addressing a body of believers who he knew and who he could actually love. So I don't think this message denies loving other believers from abroad or people you don't know. The language used suggests that John is addressing people that he did know and people who knew each other. And so the easiest context which we can see this verse being applied is the local church. John isn't necessarily forcing you or compelling you or directing you to figure out who all of your Indonesian brothers are abroad and kind of connect with them and see how you can love them practically. Though obviously that's not denied here. The main thrust of the message is the brother who's in the pew next to you, the sister who's in the pew next to you. That's the person that you're supposed to be directing your love towards. It's those who are in close moral proximity to you that your heart should long after most, that you should weep with, rejoice with because of your fondness for them. The question we must then ask ourselves is, do we love God's people? Are they an eyesore to you? Those you look upon with casual indifference? Would casting your affection upon them become burdensome to you? We should consider whether we are hiding behind the mask of superficial engagements with those within the household of faith before we merely assume that the answer to this question is yes. It's so easy to substitute being situated in the house of God for just this automatic elevation to, well, I'm a Christian who's actually doing the things that God requires. I come here and I greet my brother with love. It's always with a smile. That's required, yes, but John is going much further than that. And we'll see that as we go on throughout this passage. John motivates us by more than mere authorities of, of, by more than the mere authority of Jesus at a bare bones level. The imperative to love one another runs throughout the section of text, as I said. But John encourages our adherence to this command by appealing to what may be considered the exact antithesis of love, or what could be considered the most harrowing instance within the scripture of a lack of love. And as we know, this example all too well is the account of Cain murdering his brother Abel. 
As you've heard many times before, God communicates to us what He requires of us through explicit teaching, such as the Ten Commandments, or the Apostles saying, do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. There's explicit propositional truths laid out in the Bible, which which cause us to adhere to God's law. But God also communicates to us through negative example. There are instances in the scripture where God doesn't simply say, don't do this, don't do that. But the example itself is supposed to make us see, oh yeah, we really shouldn't do that. Oh yeah, we really shouldn't be doing that. And this is one of those instances. It's an extreme example. Surely there are many other lack instances of a lack of love in the scripture. But John, in his usual manner, is using the literary device of amplification throughout the entire course of his letter. So he uses this extreme example of a lack of love. Uh, example of murder. Consider, brethren, Cain was a sibling in Abel's household. He was his biological brother. They grew up together, probably played together as young children. As they matured, they would have shared various family responsibilities, probably. They would have seen each other attain various milestones as they grew up together. But The heart of Cain was so cool towards his brother that he murders him. Think about what he had to do in an age of no quick and easy means of killing someone. There weren't any guns. Perhaps there was no idea of how to poison someone, maybe. Think about what he had to do. Maybe he had to use some sharp rock or worse, a blunt one. Whatever the case... It was likely not done at a distance and required some force, maybe even repeatedly. This is what hatred looks like when it's manifested fully. It looks like murdering your biological brother. It looks like looking at your brother in the eye as his life drains from him. The use of such a harrowing example is meant to convey to us just how heinous it is to not love the brothers. Love and hatred are contrasted in this passage as binary options. You're either doing one or you're doing the other. To not love your brother or to hate him is to be like Cain. That's John's point. The one who was probably looking at his brother as he ended his life. That's the way of the world. There's an equivalency drawn here between Cain and the world. History informs us through the account of Cain not to be surprised that the world is antagonistic towards the sons of God. But it shouldn't be so in our own family relationships. We all know the saying, blood is thicker than water. It's just universally understood. Your family comes before earthly relationships. But also part and parcel of that saying is that there should be a discernible difference in how you treat them compared to others. It's just right and natural that you love your own family. They're the closest ones to you. This is how the apostle motivates us, brethren. 
he appeals to the fact that Cain killed his own family member. And he says, look, that is hatred. Do not be like Cain. Do not hate your brothers. Do not hate those who bear the closest family relationship to you. We must love the family of God simply because they are our family. At this juncture though, we should see that the text demands that we go further than merely suggesting that Christians are not to be characterized by episodes of murder. That's like saying, well, Christians shouldn't be jihadist terrorists. Like, yeah, that and a whole list of other things. That's setting the standard kind of law if we think that the passage is merely addressing not murdering, murdering your brother's part of you. When the passage reads, we should not be like Cain, we should obviously infer that John's overall point is that Christians are not going to be murdering from time to time, obviously. But it goes further than that. Cain is not displaying a special type of hate that caused him to murder. John says in verse 15, something categorical about hatred. He says that anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. The sense is that hatred necessarily involves being motivated to take away life. It may begin in various forms and can be motivated by several things which we will discuss later. But ultimately, there's a tug, there's this pull, this feeling that we just don't want to deal with a person anymore. That life would just be better if this person didn't exist. That it would just be a great thing if this person wasn't around anymore. The world would be done a great favor if this person was at work today, or if this person was a manager, or if that person was in that. At the root of it is really an inward self-love that values and prizes self-interest while neglecting or even harming the interests of others. That's the way of Cain. We do not have to strangle someone to death or cause their life to end by some other means to be indicted. We just have to recognize that inward desire which leads us to not wanting to see this person again, not wanting to deal with this person again. I want to see this person again. That's all we have to recognize to be indicted by this passage. But as we move through the passage, it's also important to know just how heinous this deed is because of Cain's own motivation. Cain killed his brother out of mere jealousy. That's plainly what the passage teaches. It says here, We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. He couldn't bear to see his brother's righteous deeds and the acceptance of them any longer. The narrative in Genesis gives us no reason to think Abel somehow provoked him, that Abel was somehow the instigator in this death that he experienced. The passage in Genesis gives us no reason to think that at all. Cain did it simply because he imagined it would be better for him, it would give his mind greater ease to not have to think about his brother or to be around his brother while his deeds were being accepted by God and his rejected. 
Cain was motivated and held captive by jealousy which led to hatred. One practical thing that this teaches us is that our emotions are not to serve as the guiding light of our actions. The pastor uses this analogy all the time, and I'll have to plagiarize his work. Uh, He says that emotions serve as a temperature gauge. They indicate to us what's going on in the heart. But we would be foolish to take a thermometer and try to make it a steering wheel. Emotions aren't meant to rule and guide how how we react and act towards others. That's the job of the law of God. His word is a lamp to our feet. Our heart's emotional state at any given point is not. But that's how Cain was guided to kill his brother. By a mere act of jealousy. So this imperative and the negative example which follows serves to highlight just how crude and wicked it is not to conform to this command to love one another. It's so base that it can't properly be called Christian if it characterizes our lives. I mean, think about it. Murdering someone out of mere jealousy. Hating someone out of mere jealousy. That's like the person that goes along the road who is looking for someone to steal from, bumps into you looking to rob you. You tell him that you have no money. And he kills you anyway. He says, bro, how could you be so ungrateful? How could you be so unkind to not walk around with money for me? It's just plain old what we would call in Beijing being bad mind. That's, that's as simple as it is. This is the attitude that John is confronting here. Jealousy that leads to hatred. Wanting something that your brother has. That leads to hatred. It could be anything. His money, his car, anything. Jealousy that leads to hatred is strictly condemned within the scripture. To look at yourself as someone who has even an iota of these traits should be most unsettling to your ears. You should never want someone to say that you are going the way of Cain. Consider, I implore you, the horror of hatred, the harrowing thought of what lies beneath the surface of such an attitude that we may flee from it with all haste. There's yet another negative motivation which John leaves us with, though. He claims that those who are characterized by a life of hatred abide in death. It's ironic that a life of self-absorption, a life seeking to gain more comfort, a life seeking to rob others, of the things which they have, a life spent in indifference at the expense of others, leads to the exact opposite of what you want. There's no relief. What Cain saw after, he never found. He never found. He continued to abide in death. Whether it was ease of conscience or vindication, he never ultimately found it. Notice the scripture says that he abides in death though. It doesn't tell us that he somehow slipped and fell from life into death. He just continued along the path of death. He merely maintained the status that he had. Since the first Adam sinned, there was no work anyone could do to damn themselves to a life of eternal separation from God. Cain was born a sinner and remained a sinner, condemned under the verdict of God. 
His hatred merely outwardly confirmed his present state more vividly. But we should also notice the opposite is implied here as well. Loving the brothers confirms that we are sons of God who have received eternal life. When we see in the scripture saying in verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. We aren't to think that loving the brothers is the condition we must meet to receive eternal life. As though loving the brothers is the currency we use to barter in the tribunal of God to inherit eternal life. That's not the sense of what it means. Our brother ably expounded on that this morning with the analogy he used. We don't have anything we can offer God to receive eternal life. That's not the thinking at all. Lots of people think that though. You ask them, what do you do to get to heaven? Or what is the gospel? And the response is love people. But that's not the idea here at all. Just as Cain's hatred confirmed that he abided in death, so too does loving the brothers confirm we abide in eternal life. It isn't the means by which we receive eternal life. It isn't a barter transaction. It's diagnostic of those who have actually received life. Friends, one of the things we must take away is that the existence of true faith is not a reality that remains hidden. You can't say, well, God knows my heart. You can't judge me. As though what really counts is how much you believe. That's what it is really saying. I really believe and, you know, I have my own personal relationship with God. So who are you to say anything about how I'm living? That's what the person is saying in essence. The Lord here has outlined here and in other places, those who are called by faith through the work of the Spirit have a newfound love of the brothers. The eternal life which we partake in causes a complete reorientation of our lives because of the change that occurs through regeneration. Our dead hearts are now sensitive and willing to now seek to do what God requires and commands. And in this case, that command is to love the brethren. Those who think that a Christian can be something different have invented a Christianity of their own minds, not the true religion governed and informed by the words of the Lord Jesus. In summary, these few verses above verses 12 to 15, they tell us of the realities which accompany those who are children of God. They love the brothers because Jesus says so. They love the brethren because they are the family of God. And also because to hate the brethren is a heinous act. You can't hate the brothers and not see inwardly yourself in the life of Cain. You can't read that account and then not be indicted yourself when you approach passages like these. And lastly, we love the brethren because we abide in eternal life. But those are the negative examples that John motivates us with. They're negative because obviously what Cain did was a transgression of God's law. John is pointing it out to us so that we do not go in the way of Cain. He's pointing it out to us so that we see the heinousness of the act, how reprehensible it is, and in horror, we would run and say, no, I don't want any part of that at all. That's, that's the thrust of what John is doing. But the author doesn't leave us merely with negative examples. 
He provides us with the most compelling, positive reason we ought to love the brothers, which I alluded to earlier. The simplicity of all duty to love the brethren is subsumed within this one verse. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Jesus is identified as the model and exemplar of love. What constrains us to obey is not simply that God as the authority bids us to, though that is reason enough to obey. But the gospel furnishes us with all the more reason to fulfill God's command by rooting our motivation in the wonder and grace of God's Son. Jesus did not count giving up his own life as an act which was beyond the thought of reasonableness. He didn't just come down from heaven and be like, yeah... I'll talk to these people, I'll bear up with their sinful attitudes, but giving up my life? Nah, that, that can't, that, that's just a bit too much. That's, that's not what Jesus did. The scope of Jesus' love was to give everything. Every ounce of breath, every fiber in his muscle was spent going to the cross. He stumbled there, friends. He stumbled there because he didn't have the strength to make it all the way to the cross where he died. He needed help to get there. Somebody had to carry the cross because physically he wasn't able to do it. He was exhausted from the torment and physical torture by the Romans. But he went onward willingly, though at any moment he could cause all of creation to simply bow before him under the weight of his glory. He went onward. And that's the extent of his love towards you. And that's the extent of his love towards me. That he would bear up under such cruelty for our sakes. He gave his life for us so that we may have life. He bore upon himself the weight of God's punishment for our sins. So that instead of abiding in death like Cain, the just punishment that was due to us would be placed upon him. He replaces our weak and futile efforts to produce righteousness before the Lord with His righteousness. We receive it by faith and stand before our God as righteous. All of what we needed was supplied by His selfless act of love. He gave all that He had so that we could live. This is what love is. Giving of your substance. Giving of what you are. Even your very life for the sake of others. Think then, brethren, of the extent of our obligation. It couldn't be conditioned upon how our brothers or sisters treat us from time to time. That brother or sister who doesn't practice organizational skills as well as you like, or that person who seems to be committing the same obvious errors over and over, the one who is still depressed and miserable because they wouldn't recognize and repent of their sinful behavior. These brothers and sisters are loved by Christ. Brethren, Jesus knows better than we do the full extent of their sinfulness, of their fallenness. By virtue of his omniscience, he knows everything. What little you know is probably a very minute part of the whole. What little you know of the sins of other brothers, what little you know of the faults of other brothers, is a very minuscule part of the entire picture. So how then can we look at our brothers and choose not to love them? 
How can we choose not to love the people that Jesus chooses to love? If Jesus does not scoff at them and turn away from loving them, how can we? Are we greater or better than the Lord and Christ? That we can look at those who he has regard for and turn away from them? Are we better than he? Of course not. Brethren, we can't claim to know this love that embraces all without partiality. And on the other hand, consider a brother not worthy of love. It's not possible. It's not Christian. That's the point. It's not possible for you to receive this love and fail to display it. Especially to those who God has chosen to die for. Especially for those who God has chosen to stoop so low down into the dust for. It's impossible. The standard for loving the brethren is as high as giving up your very life for them. But John draws out this principle of love by using a far less dramatic but more prevalent application. He says that if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Loving the brethren doesn't simply mean giving your life. It's not likely you may even have to ever consciously make that decision. But giving them of your possessions, giving them from your own substance, the things that you own, is something you're confronted with far, far, far more often. The rationale here is an argument from the greater to the lesser. John informs us that Jesus gave his very life. Now obviously any life is of great value, but the life of the darling of heaven supersedes them all. He gave up his life so that we could live. It then is certainly not too much to ask for us to give up possessions, not just our life, but simply possessions. Possessions that we were not born into this world with. Possessions that we received by grace. Naked you came into the world. What do you have that you did not receive? That's Paul's rhetorical question in Corinthians. What do you have that you didn't receive? It is all of grace. Having received it by grace, isn't it appropriate to give it by grace? That's the, the thrust of, of John's obligation that he's impressing upon us. As we see so often in life, the greatest acts of love are rarely spontaneous. It is more often planned, premeditated, and characterized by commitment. What that means is, it's not likely that you're going to be able to jump in front of a train, like on the movies, and say, Sabio, no, and it happens in slow. That's not likely to happen. It could happen, if it does, glory to God, if it does. But more likely, your acts of love towards the brethren will have to be planned, premeditated, and characterized by commitment. The, re the regular giving of your gas to drive around others. The regular commitment of your money to help others in need. Even giving to the church so that the needs of members are met. So that the church can meet the needs of members. These are the acts which may in and of themselves seem menial, maybe even trivial, but the Lord smiles upon us when we even give a glass of waters to our brothers in need. Finally, brothers, by way of practical application, 
We can't merely toss around words and call it love. John decries that type of love. It isn't that he's saying to speak words are not loving. The scripture in other places mentions, like in the Proverbs, that a good word is like nourishment to your bones. Jesus says words and he says, I say these words that you may have joy. So it's obvious that it's not that he's saying, well, words don't equate to love. You can be loving through the expression of your words. But what he's saying, what he is decrying, is loving merely in word or talk without the backing of actions. Which fa- that is what fails to display what love is. As James writes elsewhere, telling your brother who is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food to go in peace, be warmed and filled. That's empty. It's devoid of love. There's a simple lesson we can draw out from this criticism of such love. Don't make statements and promises to your brothers and sisters to do them good, which you don't back up with action. Do what you said you're going to do. Be where you said you're going to be for them to receive your help. Do what you promise. Stick to your word. Don't just give empty words. If you say you will be there to help, come help. Saying I love you is encouraging. Promising to do good is nice. But encouragement fizzles into disappointment quickly when your words and actions don't align. Love in truth. Actually do it. Do what you said you will do. But also, love indeed. Don't neglect others because you simply want to live a life which is insular, that is unwilling to put in effort to love others because it's too difficult or uncomfortable. Within most churches, it's actually kind of difficult to find out where needs are. People are usually very private because it's hard to tell others where your needs are at. So we shouldn't merely be reactionary. It's not that somebody has to put up their hand and say, my child and dead, help me. We don't have to wait for that act. But not waiting for that act means that we have to be getting to know each other, getting to be in people's lives in a way that we would actually receive that information. That's one of the challenging things that we have to do. We can't simply be people who are on the benches looking for someone to come to us. We have to go through the uncomfortable stage of getting to know people. Sometimes getting to know people that are hard to know. That's part of what it means to love our brothers. To meet their needs. Because you won't ever know about their needs until, unless you know. And how are you going to know unless they tell you or unless you're in their lives? Mark Dever cautions about an insular life in the book Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. He says, All the statistics seem to point to our age being an age of commitment phobia. Commitment phobia is the fear that in promising to do something good, we will miss out on getting something even better. And so, although we see many good things we could be doing, we would rather just keep our options open. We fail to address the needs that we see because it's not good enough for us at this point in time. We're going to just sit back here. That will probably resolve itself. Oh, it'll grow over. 
Is it that the substance of your life is always saying, well, something will happen. The Lord will provide. Something will happen. That's no different than what James, the thinking and actions that James rebuked. Go and be filled and be warmed. It's the same exact thing on the surface. The something better that Mark Dever refers to could just be more money in your bank account, more time on your hands to do what you want, an easier day, and the list goes on. But we can't just blindly say that our church doesn't have needs so we can sit on our laurels and comfort ourselves with the fact that everything is well with our soul, and therefore everything must be well with our sisters and brothers' soul as well. Where there are people, there are inevitably needs. They can be physical, emotional, or maybe spiritual. And how are we filling them? The Lord isn't requiring you to go throughout the ends of the earth and love every person individually. It's these people. It's 15 people. It's 20 people. How many other ever people are members of this church? Those are the people you are specifically directed to love. We are called to be loving to the saints and that means endeavoring not just to keep them barely alive. But where we can help to improve their lives, we do so. Let it not be said that our love is merely in talk, just hot air that helps no one. But let us be characterized by those who are aiding those within the family of God. Brethren, I would appeal to you as one who has received much from others and still has so much more to give. Now you think about, pray about, how you can love others in need. In practical ways that we may obey our Lord and Christ. That we may not be like Cain, and so that all the more we would partake in and display this reality of eternal life, which has been brought to us by our great God and Savior. Let us endeavor to do so through our lives.